Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. For those of you that know the Richard Jewell story, the reason this episode is named after him is not because he was the focus of the 1996 Olympic bombing investigation, but because he was a hero that was treated terribly by the federal government and the media and his name should be known for what he did that day to save lives. But we'll get into that more in this episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The 1996 Summer Olympics were destined for Atlanta, Georgia. The city was awarded the chance to host the 100-year celebration of the modern Olympics, beating out my hometown area of Minneapolis, Minnesota, due to the opportunity to highlight the advancement of civil rights in a more enlightened southern United States. The mayor of Atlanta at the time, Andrew Young, was a former U.S. ambassador and leader of the civil rights movement and felt hosting the Olympics could highlight the changes that had been made over the last 40-plus years. This attitude and the high level of respect for Mayor Young helped win the nomination for the city. The winning bid did not come without controversy, as Athens, Greece, birthplace of the Olympics, felt they were the rightful host and that Atlanta had won due to promises of lucrative revenue sharing for the IOC and a healthy sponsorship from long-standing Olympic supporter and Atlanta-headquartered Coca-Cola. Athens would go on to host the 2004 Olympics, and other countries that finished in the top four were awarded future summer and winter Olympic opportunities. But the pressure was on for Atlanta to host an Olympic Games unlike any other. Unfortunately, a deadly terrorist attack that occurred during the Olympics became the most memorable event. And although the bombing was one of four carried out by a suspect, the investigation into the crime was filled with false leads and dead ends. This is a story of Richard Jewell, and subsequently, the dumpster diving fugitive. Centennial Park was a centrally located area of land developed to host public venues during the Olympic Games. Like all Olympics, various sporting events would take place at venues all over the city's metro area, but the 22-acre urban park would serve as a ground zero for visitors to gather and take in events such as music concerts, partake in sponsor exhibits, and trade collector pins. On July 27th, roughly halfway through the two-week event, a concert featuring the band Jack Mack and the Heart Attack was underway. Two anonymous calls, later traced to a payphone near the park, warned that a bomb had been placed in the park and was going to explode. Information was relayed to law enforcement and security guards to sweep the area. One of the security guards located a suspicious-looking backpack that had been left underneath a bench near the Grandstand Sound Tower. The backpack was a military-style Alice pack, or also known as a rucksack, and it contained three pipe bombs encased in nails. The security guard who found the device, a man named Richard Jewell, notified a nearby Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent 
and the decision was made to call in the bomb squad and start clearing out the park. Two to three minutes into the evacuation, at roughly 1.20 a.m., the bomb exploded. Because there had not been much time to get the large number of people in the area to a safe distance without causing a panic, several victims were in the area of the blast when the bomb went off. And this is going to be something we are going to learn later that the suspect was likely watching this go on. He's a bomber that likes to use remote activated bombs. So he likes to watch what's going on so that he can maximize the damage. So after he makes these phone calls, he's going to watch the area in which he has placed this bomb. And likely after he sees that the, the bomb has been discovered and they're starting to evacuate the park, he decides he needs to explode this bomb before they are able to clear everybody out of the blast radius. And I don't really know why the suspect waited. Maybe he was hoping there was a point in which more people would be in the area of the bomb and was just kind of waiting until the right moment. And I really don't know why he gave warning in advance either. Uh, that wasn't really ever explained in the research. He, he, he gives his reason for making and setting off the bomb, but he never really gave a reason why he called in the warnings for it and some of it just might be psychological it might be a control issue on his part that he gets to watch this this panic and that's might maybe what he was hoping for as i mentioned these security guards and law enforcement officials they can't just you know scream hey there's a bomb and have everybody running in every direction that's how people get trampled that's how people get killed in, in crowd surges even though this is an open area, this urban park, there was a lot of people in this park for this concert and for these sponsor exhibits and, and stuff. Even at 1.20 in the morning, this is this is the Olympics. It's you know once every four years, and it's never going to happen in Atlanta again. Uh, I shouldn't say never, but it's likely not going to happen in Atlanta again. So this is a two-week-long party where people are partying late into the night. It's summer. It's summer vacation. Kids are out late. Again, so this is, even though there's open avenues, it's not like it's a, inside of a building where people have to squeeze through doors to get out. They're still going to try to move people out of the park and do so in an orderly fashion, just get people away from this bomb blast radius. But because the bomber is watching this go on, he, he has to make the choice at some point to set this bomb off. Otherwise, like I said, he's, they're going to have this area all cordoned off. They're going to have a safe distance away from this bomb. And then he either has to wait for the bomb squad to try to defuse it or he has to set it off. So he chooses to set it off about two to three minutes into this rather orderly evacuation. And many of the 111 injuries were related to penetration wounds from the nails sent out when the bomb exploded. One person, a woman named Alice Hawthorne, was struck in the head by shrapnel and died. Alice was enjoying the festive atmosphere with her daughter, and they were celebrating the young woman's 14th birthday. Her daughter was injured in the blast, but survived. A Turkish cameraman working for an international media company died while running to the scene to film the aftermath of the incident. He suffered a massive heart attack and could not be revived. And while some called for the suspension of the Olympic Games, officials and athletes met and decided to continue with the events. A massive increase in security for all events, to include bag screenings and metal detectors, was implemented after the deadly bombing. 
The investigation into the bombing began immediately. While Richard Jewell was initially hailed as a hero for finding the bomb, and his actions saved many lives, within days law enforcement started taking a closer look at him as a possible suspect. The FBI profile of the bomber supported a lone wolf personality, and Richard was living with his mother at the time and fit the profile offered by the FBI. This was further complicated by Richard's past as a failed law enforcement candidate, and many believed he had a hero complex and could have planted the bomb himself and then found it and cleared the area to appear to be a hero to the world. And this hero complex is not something that's just a part of the Olympic bombing and and the Richard Jewell story. This has happened all over the country and all over the world where you have, a lot of the times it's it's firefighters that are, are found to have started fires just so they can show up and be the hero and put them out. In some cases, these fires have been fatal. There's going to be a case in California I'll cover at some point involving a fire investigator that committed a whole bunch of arsons and a couple people died during his fires. But it's this hero complex where the chance of while you're a police officer or security guard or law enforcement official of any type, the chance you're going to be involved in any type of critical incident, a bombing, a officer-involved shooting, anything along those lines is, is pretty minimal. Most law enforcement officers will go through their entire career without ever firing their service weapon. In this case, it's you know, halfway through the Olympics and It's one thing to say you're a security guard during the Olympics. It's another thing to say that you discovered a bomb and saved lives during the Olympics. So the FBI looked at Richard and and because he fit a profile of he's he's not married, doesn't have kids, he he doesn't have really, and this is going to sound terrible, but to be fair, he doesn't have a whole lot going on in his life for him. And he gets this gig as a security officer at the Olympics. This is already... A pretty prestigious deal for this guy but they believe it's possible that he could have planted this bomb himself he could have been the one to make the call from the payphone and then suddenly he's the one to find the bomb and he's the one to start moving people away from the bomb and then at the end he gets to be this hero because he saved lives and the fbi pretty quickly and partially due to a lack of any other suspects begins to hyper focus that tunnel vision on Richard Jewell as a suspect. And on the third day after the bombing, an anonymous source in federal law enforcement leaked to the media that Richard was considered a person of interest in the investigation. The media that had been quick to hail him as a hero turned on him and camped outside his mother's apartment and began digging through his past to find any and all angles that supported him being the bomber. And there was something about he had worked, I don't know if it had been a police officer for this community college or the city that had this community college I want to say it was the president of the college when interviewed said something about he exaggerated every one of his reports basically making mountains out of molehills on every little situation and and so it quickly he gained this reputation amongst the media and amongst the investigators that he was a guy that was seeking that glory. He was trying to get that attention for being the best at what he does. And again, that just fit this profile that the FBI said, we got this lone wolf, he's likely gonna have a past that involves something in law enforcement or military. He's seeking to make some type of a statement. 
and and again a lot of this did fit Richard Jewell at the time and I think things would have gone a lot better except with his leak to the media the media all of a sudden just turned on him and we're going to learn that that's according to federal government and obviously according to Richard that just made things so much more difficult for for him and for the investigation and Richard and his family faced this intense barrage for 88 days after the bombing before a member of the U.S. Attorney's Office went public with the statement that Richard was not considered a target of the investigation. People were quick to blame the feds for purposely leaking the information in a designed campaign to crack Richard and or his family. But the U.S. Attorney said the leak was not designed and interfered more with the investigation than it helped. So a lot of people will believe that these anonymous sources are sometimes part of a designed leak. They want information about somebody being a suspect to get out. They want the public outcry. They want the intense scrutiny. They, they want uh, this, this person to feel the pressure of the investigation because it's one thing to sit at home and know that you're potentially a, a suspect in an investigation, but if nobody else knows that, the, the only pressure that's coming is internal, maybe from your family, but, but mostly yourself. But if you've got the media camped out where you can't even go outside your house without everybody taking your picture and videotaping you and shoving a microphone in your face, you can't go anywhere in the city, you can't go to your job, uh, it's, it, it changes that pressure if you're involved might make you decide, hey, I just want to have this whole thing over with, I'm going to go in and confess to it. So some people thought this was a designed leak so that Richard would face all this pressure given the the media coverage that was already going on but eventually the U.S. attorney would say it was not and it, it actually made the investigation more difficult made getting access to Richard more difficult and we do have to go back in time too I mean 1996 we're going to talk about it but it's only a little bit after the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. This is just a couple years after Ruby Ridge and Waco. And so this is a time period where there's a huge distrust in the federal government. And so people in general are not exactly buying everything that the federal government's saying. Now, there, there are people that, that do. I mean, there's definitely people that support the government during this time period. But this was a, a period where there was a lot of the militia movement, the anti-government movement going on, so this situation definitely didn't help things. And Richard was seen as one of the first victims of the 24-hour news cycle that had been born out of tragedies such as the aforementioned Oklahoma City bombing and the media circus of the O.J. Simpson trial. And when I say this, prior to this 1995-1996 era, most people got their nightly news, their local news, before, after dinner, their their late night news. Uh, the, sorry, normally the national news followed the local news. So, a lot of people looking for information. If they didn't read the newspaper, this is during the birth of the internet. Um, so, but basically, you got your information either from the radio, the newspaper, or the TV. And watching TV, you you could only usually get news in the morning. There's usually a, a noon news program but it was usually local and pretty short and then you had your evening local news and your evening national news so a lot of people plopped down in front of the tv prior to that quote-unquote prime time 
sitcom that would be time on TV where you had your shows like Home Improvement and Roseanne and, and all these other ones. People would sit down for their night in front of the television and they'd watch the local news, national news, and then their programming. But as 1995, 96, 97 rolled around, the news media realized, hey, there's enough news out there that we can run news 24-7 and we can run it on cable channels and people will have access to this 24-hour news cycle. Well, when you have something like the O.J. Simpson trial or a, a disaster tragedies such as the Oklahoma City bombing, it's not difficult to fill the 24-hour news cycle during that time. But when you don't have a major story going on, this is, again, why some people believe that Richard Jewell's the first victim of the 24-hour news cycle. People will go looking for a story where there isn't one and try to build a story where there isn't one. And that's what happened here in, and why they dug into his life to try to make him a suspect in the media as a part of this 24-hour news cycle. And Richard was not apologized to by the media, and it took until 1997 for U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno to publicly apologize for the leak and the subsequent scrutiny of Richard Jewell. Richard would go on to file lawsuits against several media organizations and a former employer for sensationalizing aspects of his life to fit the narrative that he was the bomber. While some lawsuits settled out of court, he lost many of the ones that went to trial as the courts found the media was simply reporting him as a suspect, not convicting him via journalism. And this was probably, again, because of this 24-hour news cycle, this was probably one of the first times in which somebody was put on, I guess, other than O.J. Simpson, um, this was so maybe the second time that somebody was put on trial via the media. There, there were others. I remember some other cases in the 90s and probably the late 80s where they were heavily covered. But again, it wasn't covered during a 24-hour news cycle like, like it was with Richard. And the courts really struggled with this one because there is a freedom of press and there can be a certain amount said. But at some level, you reach into defaming somebody and the courts would eventually say, all that the newspapers and, and news agencies did was report that he was a possible suspect. Nobody ever went as far as to say that he was involved. Now, there was a lot of implications of that, and there was a lot of, you know, connect the dots, and, and you'll see that Richard is a good suspect for this, but they would claim that nobody went as far as to say that he's responsible for the bombings, therefore uh, he lost a lot of his uh, defamation lawsuits. And after being cleared of any wrongdoing, many realized Richard was actually a hero and his actions did save lives. The bomb was designed with what's called a directional device, which in this case was a steel plate that would direct most of the blast out into the crowd that was gathered. It was believed that when Richard moved the bag to look inside, and or when he notified the GBI agent who confirmed the bomb, the plate was moved so that when the bomb exploded, the shrapnel wasn't directed in such a deadly direction. And so... When a bomb goes off, unless the bomb, the, the, the material the bomb is encased in somehow has a weakening of it. So in, in pipe bombs, it's powder put inside of a, a metal pipe and then capped with two metal ends. Uh, and there's a fuse inserted so that when the bomb goes off, the powder ignites, it wants to expand and 
when something expands like that in nature, it expands in a spherical pattern. It's going to just go outwards in every direction possible. Now you could, I guess, somehow weaken one side of the pipe and so that when the, the blast occurs, the pressure is designed to come out one side of the pipe more than the other. But what's easier than doing that is to just put, in this case, a large steel plate behind those bombs so that when the explosion occurs and it attempts to go in that spherical pattern, that explosion will hit that immovable steel plate and that'll redirect that energy that was going into the plate and add it to the energy that's going in the opposite direction. So in this case, this bomb is designed, uh, it's, it's put up against, under a bench, up against the sound tower platform. So the bomb's not supposed to go backwards because there's not going to be anything in that sound tower. There's nobody that can stand there. It's, it's, it's a raised platform. So if you can picture it, this bench would have been sitting kind of almost up against this four foot tall uh, platform that was that had kind of a wood fencing underneath it. And so if you put that bomb there with nothing else in there, half of your explosive and shrapnel uh, is going to go into this this sound tower where there's there's nothing there there's nobody there so this directional plate that is sitting behind the bombs means that you're going to get more of your blast your shrapnel your explosive power and pressure coming out into the open area to the bench in the area out in front of the bench which is how this bomb was designed and because when Richard looked in the bag, or again, when the GBI agent confirmed that this was a bomb, what, what Richard was seeing, they had moved something so that this plate was now facing at either slightly at an angle or downward or something along those lines to the point that when the bomb went off, this, it changed the direction of the blast so that not as much of the blast was going out into the crowd. In a review of the FBI investigative tactics was conducted after the investigation into Richard Jewell. It was learned that three agents tricked Jewell into walking them through his actions under the auspice that they were making a training video. This was an attempt to prevent Richard from feeling he needed a lawyer and wasn't a suspect. And while not unconstitutional, it was seen as a violation of FBI procedure and the three agents were censored and placed on unpaid suspensions for a time. And so this is, this is something where the FBI suspected him. He was definitely a suspect at this time, and they wanted to try to get him to slip up. And, and oftentimes during interviews or interrogations, this is where you just let the suspect free talk, or in this case, free show you what they did that evening. And you're looking for things that you can identify, that you can prove are, are false or couldn't have happened the way that the suspect is telling you that they happen so that you can turn around and use that against them. Well, when they're doing this, they should have been informing him that he was a suspect. They should have informed him that he had the right to remain silent. Basically, he should have had some type of a Miranda warning before this because they did plan on using this against him in a court of law and they were basically investigating an interview with him, but they didn't want him to get wise to that. It wasn't until actually after he made this video and they were asking him a whole bunch of questions that he actually finally kind of asked them, and you guys think I did this? Am I a suspect? Should I get a lawyer? So he figured it out eventually, but this was, again, seen as 
was it unconstitutional? No, because he wasn't in custody. He wasn't in handcuffs and and told that he wasn't free to leave. He was doing it of his own free will. So so they can ask him the stuff, but the FBI saw it as not the way that they would want to conduct this because if this does go to court, this is a huge question of whether or not he should have been read his Miranda rights, whether he was free to leave, whether if he had done something during this making of a training video that led them to believe he was the bomber, would they really have let him go? And that was always the deciding factor for myself as a law enforcement officer is if I'm conducting a interview or interrogation of somebody that's not in custody, if I believe they're going to say something or do something as a part of that interview or interrogation that leads me to believe that I'm going to end up arresting them and for any type of a crime, I would shut down the interview interrogation and go into Miranda at that point. I don't have to put handcuffs on them. I don't have to put them into a squad car. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to put them into custody in order to read the Miranda. I can just read the Miranda just so they understand that they have rights. And if at that point they want to stop talking or, or whatnot, yes, I might lose getting valuable information. But I also know that if I get any information from them after that point, it's going to stand up in court. So again, the FBI wasn't a huge fan of how this investigation was conducted and they ended up disciplining the three agents that were that did this training video thing with Richard. Now Richard was able to follow his dream of becoming a sworn law enforcement officer working in both Pendergast, Georgia and as a deputy sheriff in Meriwether County, Georgia. He completed some circuits of talk shows and gave speeches about his life. He married a woman in 1998, and they remained married until his death from heart-related issues and diabetes in 2007. He was only 44 years old. With Richard off their list as the main suspect and suffering from tunnel vision for almost three months, the FBI found themselves with little evidence of who was actually responsible for the bombing. And we've, we've talked about this before in a couple of other bombings we've covered. Bombings, especially a one-off bombing, is very difficult for law enforcement to solve just because unless there's, in this day and age, unless there's DNA and or fingerprints that survive the bomb somehow, or somebody sees the bomber, or the suspect tells somebody else that then turns in this person, and there's a search warrant, and they find matching materials at this person's home to the bomb, it's very difficult without any of that kind of stuff to find one bomber out of whatever it was 300 million citizens in america at this point and and they also had to rule out potential foreign terrorism there's a lot that was going on at this point including the wars in the balkans uh with with serbia and bosnia kosovo uh, that entire area was was a hotbed at this point of of fighting and the US was getting involved in or starting to get involved in some of that stuff so it could have been related to that so again it's not just the US citizens they had to look at this as some type of a potential foreign terrorism act as well and it would take until early 1997 when the bomber struck again before they would make any progress in the Olympic bombing on January 16th another bombing in the Atlanta area this one in an abortion clinic in Sandy Springs breathed new life into the investigation. The first bomb exploded behind the building and because of the remote location of the bomb, there were no injuries. 
An hour later, while everyone was waiting outside the building, a second bomb went off. This one had been left in the area most likely to be occupied after the evacuation, and seven people were injured from shrapnel, and more than 50 people experienced concussive injuries. So this is what we call a secondary device. This is when a bomber knows that it's going to be difficult. They can't necessarily go into the building because that's going to produce a lot of eyewitnesses to them and potentially cameras and, and all that kind of stuff. And just waiting as one person walks in and out of the building is not likely going to cause a mass incident, which is what they're going for. So in this case, setting off a bomb behind the building, it evacuated the building. Nobody's going to be back there because that's where the bomb went off and that's where police are going to be have it taped off and they're going to be doing an investigation. So the building's empty, nobody's in the back, so you know that everybody's going to be in the front parking lot or, or somewhere out in front of the building. So you now that everybody's gathered into one area and it's an open area, you have a second bomb planted in that area and you explode it once law enforcement and first responders in the area and you can do maximum damage. After investigating the remains of this bomb, they linked components used in the bomb and the bomb design and concluded that the same suspect was likely responsible for both the Olympic attack and this one. But while they had a connection between the bombings, they lacked anything to identify a perpetrator. So they're going to compare remnants of the bomb. They're going to see components, the type of powder used, the type of metal used, the fuse devices. They're going to look at a whole bunch of different aspects of this bomb and they're going to also geographically, both bombs occurred in the Atlanta area, determine this is the same bomber but that doesn't get them any closer. Now what it is likely going to do is going to rule out foreign terrorism at this point. It's not very common for somebody who targeted the Olympics to then turn around and tar target an abortion clinic. The Olympics was a world event, was a some see it as a largely political event. If the next bombing with a similar bomb had occurred in Washington DC or New York or even a popular area in LA, you could maybe argue that, but now that they're targeting a, a small abortion clinic in the outskirts of Atlanta, they're they're leaning more towards this being domestic terrorism. One month later, on February 21st, 1997, a bomb exploded at a lesbian bar called the Other Side Lounge of Atlanta. The blast injured five people and once again was linked to the unknown bomber. And the suspect struck one more time, this time targeting an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama on January 29th, 1998. The bomb killed an off-duty police officer named Robert Sanderson and critically injured a clinic nurse named Emily Lyons. But the suspect had finally slipped up and two witnesses came forward and provided a description of the suspect. Even better, one of them had watched the suspect get into a truck and leave the scene and provided law enforcement the license plate of the suspect's vehicle. These two men were a college student and a lawyer. The college student had been doing laundry in his dorm room building at the University of Alabama when he heard the blast. He saw dozens of people running to the scene, but one man walking away calmly, and this man appeared out of place. The student ran to his car and started following the man until he got a good look at his face. He stopped at a McDonald's to place a 911 call. And remember, this is pre-cell phone, so if you're going to call the police, it's either a pay phone or, in this case, you know the McDonald's is open. He pulls in and he starts making this phone call to McDonald's. 
and a lawyer who was enjoying a McDonald's breakfast heard the young man exclaiming on the phone that he saw the bomber, and the man stepped outside and started following the suspect on foot. The suspect ducked into the woods, and the witness thought he lost him, until by blind luck he turned onto a street and saw the man come out of the woods and put some items in the back of a truck. The suspect started driving the truck, and the witness followed and wrote down the license plate on his McDonald's cup. He then pulled up side by side with the truck at the next light to get a good look at the suspect's face. The suspect looked right back at him and knew he had been identified. The suspect drove off, and in the days before cell phones, he was now gone, but law enforcement had two solid eyewitnesses and a name for their suspect, Eric Rudolph. Eric Robert Rudolph was born on September 19, 1966 in Merritt Island, Florida. When he was 15 years old, his father died and the family moved to rural western North Carolina. He dropped out of high school soon after the move and started training as a carpenter with his older brother. After he turned 18, he spent some time at a white supremacist compound in Missouri with his mother and was indoctrinated in many racist and homophobic viewpoints. While at the compound, he obtained his GED and enlisted in the U.S. Army. He trained as an infantry soldier and was assigned to the 101st Airborne. He attended air assault school and was advanced to E-4 before he was discharged for marijuana use in 1989. After being discharged from the Army, Eric used his previous white supremacy connections to join several white supremacist and anti-government movements that were gaining traction in the wake of Ruby Ridge, Waco, and the Oklahoma City bombing. Sometime before the Olympics, Eric made the decision to try and disrupt the event via a bombing. He later released a statement that said it was his way of trying to put a stop to the games that he thought represented global socialism, and he hoped to embarrass the U.S. government for allowing legal abortion. His anti-abortion and homophobic views led to the other bombings, and he likely would have continued his attacks, but after being seen and followed by the two witnesses in Birmingham, he knew he would be a prime suspect and he went into hiding. He was correct as a day within the bombing Law enforcement officers throughout the United States were looking for Eric and his 1989 Nissan pickup. On February 7, 1998, his truck was located by hunters in a wooded area of North Carolina. Law enforcement swarmed the area but failed to locate the fugitive. On February 14, 1998, a federal warrant was issued for his involvement in the deadly Birmingham bombing. His family did not cooperate with the investigation and felt that Eric was being made a scapegoat by the government so that the bombings could be pinned on someone. To show how strongly he felt about his brother's innocence, on March 8, 1998, Eric's older brother Daniel set up a video camera and sawed off his hand with a circular saw in his home in South Carolina. His hand was successfully reattached by surgeons. On May 5, 1998, Eric was added to the FBI's top 10 most wanted list and a $1 million reward, which is roughly $2.5 million today, is offered for information leading to his capture. While a few reports would come in over the years about sightings of Eric or how he showed up to ask people for food, he managed to elude authorities by living off the land, dumpster diving, and committing petty crimes in North Carolina for almost five years. On May 31, 2003, a 21-year-old police officer with less than a year on the job was conducting a routine patrol of some closed businesses when he came across a man in a dumpster at 4 a.m. Initially, the officer thought the man may have been trying to burglarize the business and had been hiding in the dumpster to avoid detection. 
The officer put his spotlight on the suspect who fled into an alley and tried to hide. After calling for backup and locating the suspect, the officer gave commands ordering the suspect to give himself up. And so this is something where police officers, especially when you're working what we call the dog watch, the, the middle of the night, you're just trying to stay awake oftentimes at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And it, w- it was pretty common. A lot of times I would get out of my car and walk and just pull on doors and in business strip malls just to check make sure everything's locked up good to go if you find an open door you notify your dispatch it's usually the case where the owner of a business just forgot to lock their door before they left or the teenage employee that they have was in a rush to get out that night and forgot to lock the door but uh, you would do these door pulls you would drive around these closed businesses because this is when these crimes such as burglaries and vandalism type crimes this is when they're occurring is is these early morning hours so as he pulls his car around the back of the strip mall he sees this guy jump into a dumpster he's thinking okay this guy was probably trying to break into the rear of one of these stores the rear one of these buildings and he hears the squad car he jumps into this dumpster but the the guy's got a better reason to be hiding, I guess. The suspect, who was later identified as Eric Rudolph, gave a fake name and admitted to dumpster diving. He was identified as the wanted fugitive, and police were surprised that he was clean-shaven. He had dyed his hair black and was wearing new tennis shoes. This led them to believe that the family and friends in the area had been assisting him in avoiding arrest. Because he claimed afterwards, after his arrest, that he'd been living off the land for five years, he'd been eating salamanders and... and wild plants and and whatnot and if you've ever tried to go i mean I've, I've gone on backpacking trips where i'm gone for five days or a week or whatever it might be at the end of living out of a a pretty decent tent and having access to freeze-dried food and snacks and water and and everything i, I can come out of the woods after five days or a week looking pretty rough so if you've now multiply that out over five years you would expect this guy to have you know a scraggly beard you expect his clothing to have holes in it you'd expect you know his hair to be unkempt but here he is with clean cut hair a a shaved freshly shaved face and you know his clothing is decent he's got brand new tennis shoes on so either he's finding a way to steal items and stay well clothed and clean shave and all that kind of stuff or somebody was at times taking him in and letting him clean himself up and be kind of more presentable i guess as a human being so they did figure that that he didn't survive all five years living off the land they think that he had a lot of help along the way on october 14th 2003 eric was formally charged for all of the bombings The crimes included use of an explosive device to cause death, which made him eligible for the death penalty. To avoid the death penalty, Eric agreed to plead guilty to all the charges and to take law enforcement into the woods and help them recover over 250 pounds of dynamite he had hidden in various caches. He released a statement to the public admitting his involvement in the crimes and rationalizing his actions via his anti-abortion and anti-gay stances. He claimed he only pled guilty to deny the U.S. government the pleasure of killing him, and his plea in no way meant that he recognized the U.S. government's right to govern him. The sentences for his crimes included four consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. 
Like many other infamous federal prisoners, he is housed at a supermax prison in Colorado where he spends 23 hours a day locked in his concrete cell. He will never again see the outside world. While many in the anti-government and white supremacist movements see Eric as another one of their heroes, most Americans see him for the coward and waste of oxygen that he really is. While many remember the name of Richard Jewell from the Olympic Park bombing incident, albeit for the wrong reasons, at least most people now realize he was the hero and most have forgotten the name of the villain responsible. And I wish that happened more often in our society. So big true blue crime posthumous thank you to Richard Jewell for his actions that day in 1996 that likely saved many lives and for bearing the brunt of an unfair media campaign. I'm glad you died a hero and Clint Eastwood's film told a mostly true story. And lost in this entire bombing investigation, I try to highlight a couple of the victims uh, along the way, put their names out there because they're obviously true victims of this terrible uh, act of violence. I think uh, Eric later said that, at least in his last bombing, the one where he was identified and the one that killed the off-duty police officer and critically injured the nurse, again, he was operating the bomb remotely and he waited until the police officer must have noticed something. The bomb was in some bushes or shrubs outside of the abortion clinic. And so the officer must have noticed this backpack or whatever it was in and walked up closer to investigate it. And either because of what happened at the Olympic bombing or whether Eric was just a cruel individual, I mean both, but he decided at that point he was going to detonate the bomb and this is what killed the, the police officer and critically injured the nurse. Uh, so he, again, he's, he's this true coward. And meanwhile, thankfully, everybody in this case, like I said, for the wrong reason, remembers the name Richard Jewell, who is actually the hero, because had Richard not located that backpack, had he not manipulated it, not that he knew what he was doing, but had he not manipulated and changed that directional device in there, uh, the, the number of people that were in the park that would have died was would probably have been in the dozens so again he saved dozens of lives because he found that backpack because he acted quickly enough and not many people remember him as somebody saving dozens of lives they remember him as a suspect in the bombing now in an ironic twist the media got upset at clint eastwood's film which is called richard jewell for its suggestion that a reporter traded sexual acts for the information about Richard Jewell days after the investigation, and this caused the leak. In a letter sent to Clint Eastwood from lawyers representing the newspaper portrayed in the movie, they said that the movie falsely portrays the reporters using unprofessional and highly inappropriate reporting methods and claim it's extremely defamatory and damaging. So the media was upset that a film about them ruining a man's life by rushing to judgment and falsely accusing him of a crime while defaming and damaging him is upset about being falsely portrayed in a film and claiming it defames and damages them. So again, a little bit of an ironic twist, but I guess maybe uh, quite hypocritical there on the part of the newspaper. But again, <laughs> the Hollywood is just another form of free speech or free media so they can do what they want or should be able to do what they want and the media is actually supposed to be held to a higher standard than Hollywood because Hollywood gets to use creative adaptations whereas uh, the newspaper is supposed to report the truth so again it's just quite ironic quite hypocritical that they're upset about this because even to the day that he died a lot of these media would not 
apologized how they treated Richard. Now, there were a couple of reporters I found during my research. There was one really well-penned article, but I think it was after Richard passed away. Basically, it was a journalist that had covered the, the Olympic Park bombing, was apologizing to Richard, realizing that as he looked back upon his actions during that time period and that coverage, there was such a rush to try to be the one to break the story, to try to change people's viewpoints uh, towards Richard, or turn him from a hero into this villain, uh, that he realized how wrong it was and he wanted to apologize and, and wanted to change how media does things, but I don't know that that's, that's going to happen. But that is it for the case of Richard Jewell. And again, the reason I called this episode Richard Jewell, I don't name my episodes after the suspects, so I wasn't going to name it Eric Rudolph. I could have named it the Olympic Park bombing, but there's obviously more to it than that. And I understand that Richard Jewell was only involved in the first bombing, but I just I always think it's important to get the name of somebody out there as much as I can, uh, That, especially in a case like this, that is either a victim or a hero that when people remember an event, they remember the correct name, the person that should be remembered. And in this case, it's Alice Hawthorne, it's the, the Turkish cameraman. Sorry, I, I saw his name somewhere, but I should have put it in here, but I didn't. And then it's the police officer, Robert Sanderson. Those are the people whose names I want remembered, um, not the, the coward that's locked up in a concrete cell right now. So that's it, guys. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.